0: Welcome to episode 20 of the Pogma Goal Podcast. What a
1: beautiful goal, isn't it? A beautiful goal. What a name!
2: Messi, Messi enganchó como le gusta el provoco el surda. Oh, no. again, another time, the shot on the button.
0: of it! Oh, what a goal! What a goal that is! What a goal
1: from David Beckham! Oh, Zinedine, oh, Zinedine, a passa!
0: Different class Different Class My name is James Crew, co-editor of Pogue Goal, Ireland's only football magazine, and you're listening to the 20th installment of our series looking at global football culture. You can still pick up our latest issue 7 in Eason's and Tuttle's outlets around Ireland and of course online at PogueMagol.com where you can read about the goal that allowed Leo Messi to touch international glory, France's everyman, Stéphane Givash, and Jack Mitchell, the man with a plate in his head, a fabled war hero in Waterford, whose sporting prowess made him equally renowned. And as we speak, we're busy gathering content for a brand new issue 8 of the magazine. Keep an eye on our social channels for more. On today's episode, I'm joined by the authors of a new book on Shamrock Rovers entitled From Ring's End to Tala, which tells the story of the famous Irish footballing institution through interviews with 50 players from the 1930s to the present day. While I have no Taylor or Joe with me as co-hosts today, I do still have two guests who I've really been looking forward to chatting to. McDara Ferris is a contributor to League of Ireland news site ExtraTime.com, the Shamrock Rovers' Matchday magazine, and of course the Pogba Gold magazine. He's also the author of another book on Rovers, Talla Time, which charts the more recent history of the club. And Owen Rice is an author from Dublin, a fellow Hoops fan, and the other half of the double act that has produced From Ring's End to Talla, telling the 100-year history of Ireland's most successful club to players who've worn the famous green and white shirt. We'll jump into the book in more depth shortly, some of the names interviewed include legends of the Irish game, such as Liam Toohey and John Giles, up to modern-day stars in the making who we've spoken about on this podcast before, like Jack Byrne and Gavin Pizzunu. So, welcome to the Pokemon Gold podcast, McDara and Owen. Thanks, James. Thanks, James. It's great to have you here. Lads, to kick things off, as we're still in the early stages of the year, my first question is... With a hugely exciting League of Ireland season coming soon, the conclusion to the European leagues, a Nations League for Ireland and a Winter World Cup, what are you most looking forward to in 2022? I'll go to you first, McDarrah.
1: I think probably, you know, we're coming out of lockdown here in in Ireland. Like the second half of last season, we did have spectators back in the ground. Um, But I think if we could get a run a run of games with full spectators in the ground and from a Shamrock Rovers point of view probably looking forward to um, Rovers are in the the Champions League qualifiers again and as champions you get a a quite a you get a the champions route through the Champions League qualifiers gives you a good chance to go quite far in Europe even if you drop out so a European away trip during the summer is something that I'd love to be able to to get to uh, all going well.
2: Yeah, I think for, for myself, uh, from a, a sort of a a selfish Rovers point of view, uh, seeing Jack Byrne back in action uh, is going to be a real highlight for me. Jack uh, is one of the best players I've ever seen play for Rovers, uh, incredibly talented and um, didn't work out for him in Cyprus for a, a variety of reasons, uh, none of which I think were footballing um and you know i i think jack can play at a, at a far far higher level than than this to be honest with you but you know really delighted that he's that he's come back and really looking forward to seeing him in action uh, so i think yeah seeing jack back i think also from a league of Ireland level seeing a really competitive league this year i think um you know it sounds strange to say that you know we want uh, a more competitive title because obviously we're happy to have won the last two uh, but, you know, I think Derry are going to be really, really strong this year. Um, the dock will, will, will be better. You know, Pats will still be good. So I'm, I'm Sligo as well. So, like, you're hoping for, I think, um, more of a title race, um, you know, just to to probably make the, the latter half of the season a bit more exciting for the neutral. Uh, it would be nice. Uh,
0: we'll jump into all that and especially the book. But on all our podcasts, we like to ask our guests, what first got them interested in football and in both your cases, how you came to fall in love with Rovers? So, again, I'll start with you, McDara. Uh,
1: my father would have brought me to Miltown. I'm old enough to have been to the last games in the last couple of seasons at Miltown, where Shamrock Rovers played up until 1987. So my father wasn't a big sports fan. I think it was a case he wanted to maybe just get myself and my older sister out of the house on a Sunday afternoon, which was back when the League of Ireland was a 3.30 uh, kickoff on a Sunday, maybe to give my mum a little bit of space on her own, maybe to, to read the newspaper and get a rest from from us knocking around the place. So I suppose that's that's how I got into following uh, following Shamrock Rovers and, and following football, as I say, even though my father wasn't a big, big football fan and. Um, so, yeah, sometimes he finds it a bit strange that, yeah, I'm pretty fixated with all things football and, and particularly Shamrock Rovers, but but they're, they're good memories. So it was nice, you know, chatting to some of the players for the book who had actually played in Milltown. So I w- don't necessarily remember t- too much, but I do remember, you know, going to the likes of the last couple of seasons when Pat Byrne was kind of anchoring that Rovers midfield when when the Hoops won four league titles in a row. So that's probably my my genesis for uh, for following football. And Owen?
2: Yeah, similar enough to McDara, probably just uh, the parents trying to get us out of the house more than anything. Um, I come from a, a, a strict Man United family, so I'm the one who sort of uh, rebelled and went to the, the domestic game. But uh, we all went along as kids just uh, you know, for something to do, really. But I suppose it's, you know, I, that was 1990 when I started going, but it was probably the mid-90s um, when I started really getting into it when you're kind of 15, 16 and you're, you know, getting the bus up to exotic places like Trumconda and Fibsborough and all these places that you'd never been, and even getting supporters' club buses further fields to you know Drahada and places like that. Um, and I suppose that kind of sense of, of of sort of freedom and excitement as a as a, a young teenager following the club around the country. Um, I suppose that's what. What sort of got you hooked it's the the social side probably as well as the as the, as well as the football side uh, I think most most League of Ireland fans would say is is it's it's that combination that that hooks you in
0: yeah i mean the the history of Rovers and McDarrah's previous book the kind of journey to get to Tala um maybe for international audiences we might do a quite a short synopsis, but I kind of want to jump to the the modern era because. Effectively, Rovers flirted with extinction, perhaps a number of occasions, like when they lost uh, Middletown, uh, were relegated. Um, that's where I think the 400 club was essentially supporters coming together to rescue the club. But looking at it now, champions of Ireland, players like Jack Byrne, uh, you know, an Irish international, potentially an Irish international again the kind of building of the fan base in Tala, just on the day we're recording, I see that Rovers are close to 3,000 uh, season ticket holders uh, for the new season and uh, the Academy. In your opinions, are Rovers on a as strong a base as they've ever been today?
1: One of the previous articles I did for Pope Gold Magazine was actually talking about the, the probably the low ebb for Shamrock Rovers, yeah. which was... Um, you know, after the sale of Milltown, uh, Rovers played in various grounds around the places and Tala began planning and then construction, you know, in the in the late 90s. But it then stopped the financial problems kind of with, with the club. And Rovers ended up playing. They were renting St. Patrick's Athletic Ground in Inchicore and there was trouble after a game and essentially they got evicted and they'd nowhere to play their next home games. They played a home game, uh, in UCD in Belfield, and then they played a home game in Cork, and and to many people, myself included, it was probably a low point having to play a home game two hundred and fifty kilometers from your home ground, and um, having to wear your away jersey. Um, the Cork Cork City Club were quite helpful because they wanted the rent money from that game, but the fans weren't exactly welcoming of, of Shamrock Rovers fans down and. Really looked like Jesus. Could Rovers go any? Could Rovers go any lower? And so I was interested in writing about that because, as you kind of said, I I think Rovers are as strong as they've they've ever been. Like Shamrock Rovers won six FA Cups in the nineteen sixties. Um, then at a very fallow period during the seventies and in the nineteen eighties, as I mentioned earlier on, they won four league titles in a row, but played in front of small enough crowds. I think the success. There's always discussion kind of what happened in terms of, you know, lots of live football on the television from England, kind of the facilities in Milltown, maybe not so great, even though the pitch was always well, was brilliant. But if you look at now, um, we kind of laugh sometimes about the anti-rover sentiment. And, you know, you probably get that with successful clubs and Shamrock Rovers have won the title in the last two years, won the FAI Cup um, the year before that, haven't had a long 32-year wait before that, last won the Cup. But I think some of that anti rovers sentiment, which you're always going to get with successful clubs, and listen, that's what rivalry is about. If other clubs are successful, I'm probably giving out about them. But I think some of it is a little bit of people are wondering, you know, will Rovers continue to dominate? Because you know, they've a, a nice arrangement in, in uh, Tallis Stadium, which they rent for a significant six-figure summer season, but from South and County Council, uh, planning is Received for the new stand, so it looks like they'll be they'll go ahead with that probably later on in the year, and that'll bring the capacity up from eight thousand to ten thousand, all seated, four separate stands. Um, and then it's probably the academy off the field, which you know three or four years ago Rovers were struggling somewhat. They weren't challenging for titles, put put it like that. They were kind of fourth or fifth, kind of getting into Europe just about, but not challenging at all during Dundalk's dominance and. Cork City's time up, you know, their rivalry at Dundalk. Money was invested by the club in the academy. And I think we're beginning to see fruits of that. I think a lot of people will be aware of maybe Gavin Bazunu, who's, you know, made, I think, eight or nine caps for, for Ireland. Man City goalkeeper out on Loma Portsmouth. Um, Liam Scales, who was... So Gavin Bezuna went for half a million up up front, plus uh, bonuses, which they're they're racking up. I think it's nearly 100 grand for each competitive appearance up to a a capped amount. I think there's maybe one or two more uh, games. Liam Scales, who joined uh, Celtic midway through last season, again for a similar amount. And we're talking on a day that St. Patrick Athletic sold James Ibanqua to Udinese for for half a million euro, which I think is great to see for the league. Um, But I think, and Rovers, it's not about winning trophies at the academy level, but the under-19 team did win the the league last season and and you know players are coming through Idemou Maku played for the Rovers first team as a uh, became the youngest goal youngest goal scorer in Europe for Rovers um last year scored in in the European run so we're beginning to see players come into the team um, and I think that's I think people are probably looking at it, and Rovers fans are probably hoping that the dominance might continue um, but as Owen said earlier on there's plenty of teams that are, are spending some money and there will be a challenge, but um, certainly in my own view, I, I don't think in my time following Rovers, I don't think the club's been as strong in terms of the fan base, you know, the average attendance and um, the results on the pitch. I think probably what people are looking for is maybe to get that breakthrough into Europe, into the group stages like they did in 2011 and Dundalk have, have done twice since in the Europa League group stages. I think that's probably the next step that this team this team needs to needs to make.
0: I I said on the podcast before one of my favourite memories in football was I was at that game in White Hart Lane uh, when Rovers went one 0 up and there were so many Irish all around the stadium like we are we almost got a few slaps because we we're in with all the Spurs fan but it was just amazing that the kind of London Irish community was all there but um that I think what you said and I'll put the question to own like all those things you said. OK, there is that sentiment that, uh, you know, you don't want one club running away with it. But that that, that also, we kind of said it with Dundalk, a, a rising tide lifts all boats. The things you're talking about, a modern stadium with four sides, uh, players being sold for, like, realistic money, not pittance like the famous Seamus Coleman to, to, um, from Sligo. Like, they're all good things for the league, On would you agree?
2: Oh absolutely um and I think you know if you look back at the history of the League of Ireland whenever one club was doing well that the basically the other clubs just had to sit back and wait for them to implode. That was sort of what happened. It was also so um cyclical you know a club would have a bit of dominance they'd overspend, they'd go bust, possibly be relegated, possibly go out of existence, even as happened some of them in the past, so you know I think what's really interesting um even say for international listeners would be, you know, how the model has changed um, in Ireland, and how I think Rovers are to the fore of that. You know, it's a far more sustainable model. It's a majority fan-owned club. And um, it's, you know, huge investment has gone into the academy, and I think we're beginning to see the the fruits of that. And I think it'll be really interesting in the next few years uh, what happens there. But, you know, I think there's a realisation that, you know, the League of Ireland, it's never going to be the Premiership. It's never going to be Serie A, you know, and a lot of smaller leagues, uh, bigger leagues than ours, but still smaller leagues compared to in Europe. You know, they know that the model is to produce youth and load them in teams for a few years and sell them on and then reinvest that money. And that's what Rovers are attempting to do now. Um, And I think, in fairness, it's what a lot of the other clubs are are doing as well. I mean, we see Pat selling um, one of their players to Udinese today, you know, fantastically talented young 18-year-olds, you know, and that's a brilliant move. And you love to see things like that. You love to see lads going to clubs outside of, you know, League One or League Two or whatever. But, um, you know, I think your, your question was really interesting in terms of is this the strongest they've ever been? Because, you know, I think... You could hark back to the glory days of the League of Ireland when they were, you know, winning six cups in a row and playing in front of thirty or forty thousand people, and you know, you could think, well, surely they they were stronger then. But actually, I think they probably are stronger now because it's a far more sustainable model. And um, you know, back then it was a privately owned um, club; it was owned by one family, you know, a benevolent family, but one that, you know, in fairness, the the club was a cash cow for them. Um, they were they were making money out of it, you know, um, and then private ownership uh, uh, was sold to another family. Then and obviously that that led to to a ruin, you know, and, and nearly saw the club out of business. And really, in a lot of ways, the club has no right to exist because you know twenty years without a home ground. And I think when Rovers qualified for Europe, the the Europa League group stages in twenty eleven, you know, I think it captured a lot of people's imagination because this was a club that within six years had gone from examinership and and really a stroke of a judge's pen from going out of business. Um, and six years later was in the group stages of the European competition. So I think, you know, a lot of people in Ireland, but, but also outside of Ireland sort of, uh, you know, saw that as being really a great sports story, you know, as well as just being a great story for Rovers.
0: On a previous pod, I interviewed my brother, the other half, Paul McGold, who you won't like to hear is a bold season ticket holder, but he's living in Cabra. So he's living in in North County, Dublin, uh, close to Daly Mount Park. And he said around there, he likened it, we're both from Kilkenny, he likened it to Kilkenny GAA in the fact that you see the kids wearing the kits and the schoolboys and schoolgirls teams wearing the tracksuits around the area. And I'm I'm keen to know if, if Tala and those surrounding areas are like that for rovers now. Um you see, as I said about the season tickets, I think there was a a Dublin Derby was about seven or eight thousand, I think it was the highest ever. So I'm keen to, to know from you guys. Is that do you feel that kind of groundswell of they're embedded in a community and they're only growing?
2: Yeah, no very much so. Um uh, you know, I think when you go out to to tally, you see that, and when you go to games, you see it as well. I mean, the the demographics at the matches is a lot different than what it used to be. Um, you know, myself and McDara my spent, uh, you know, decades <laughs> literally going to games where it was like we were the youngest people there, you know, and kind of like teenagers, early twenties kind of thing. Um, because the only people going to games were people who'd been hooked during the good times, and yeah. uh, and and had stuck with it. Whereas if you go to games now, it's full of kids. It's also full of girls, full of women, which you wouldn't have got 20 years ago as as well. And that's a really, really great thing to see as well. Um, So I think it is changing. And I think it's also great. I'm going to go sort of off message here slightly and say that it's also great to see that at Bose. Um, You know, I think in fairness to Bose, um, they've done really, really good work in the community. um, And they're reaping the benefits of that because they're getting the crowds they're getting the local support. Um, even when they're not actually challenging for the title, they're still, you know, there's still that buzz about them. Yeah. Um, and you'd hope that other clubs can follow suit. You know, I, I live very close to to Richmond Park where St. Pat's play. Um, and I think they're beginning to get that, but I think they've struggled in the last decade or so to really create that local buzz um around them. And you'd love to see it kick off a bit more because. You know, ultimately, like, it, it as you say, a, a rising tide lifts all boats, and you you want to see all the clubs progress. You don't just want to be the best club in a really rubbish league. You want to be the best club in a really good league. So you do want to see them all come up like that.
1: I think another thing to say is there's definitely, you know, Shamrock Rovers, you see it in Tala, but they do draw um, support base from, from across the city. I think the other thing, and it, it be it rovers pats bows whoever um now that the national under league uh, underage leagues have been in place for a number of years um, clubs are no more most clubs anyway uh, certainly the, the the competitive ones and the, you know they're not just a, a first team anymore they're a club and you're seeing that with the national underage team so you know when rovers got the trophy in the last home game of the season all the schoolboy and schoolgirl uh, teams were all invited, so it was it was a full house. I think you 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 get that. So the the players who play for the underage teams for whatever the club is, they're part of that club and they see the the first team is where they want to get to. And I think it's great we've been able to see that. Um, you know, the women's national league has expanded, and no bows are they're going to play their women's national league games in Dalyman Park this season, which wasn't the case last year. So again, whether you're a boy or a girl. You, you have something to aspire to to work towards uh, that that first team be it the men's team or the women's team and if you don't if you don't get that that's fine but that'll be that'll be your team so I think irrespective of Rovers I think that's definitely been a, a positive that it's more than the idea being that you're a club more than just a first team because I, I certainly remember going to to Rovers and all all, all they had was the first team I and mean, when the first team was rubbish you know what got you going back was uh, as Alan said was the camaraderie and the friendships that you had with for the people the mates that you went to see the games what you really want to have is that plus a successful yeah. club and a successful team challenging challenging on the top and I think um, you know also the way the a lot of the clubs not all of them but are are structured with um, you know feeder clubs or affiliate clubs so at, at Rovers there's the Shamrock Rovers Academy and you know, players have come through that into the first team, and others have have um, have gone on and and gone to other clubs even without breaking into the first team. So Kevin Zeffie being an example, who's gone from from Inter Milan, um, or even James Furlong, who did play one first team game, who, who got a move to the UK. And um, some of it's obviously tied up with the, with the Brexit rules as well. But um, y- y- you have that you know available for for players to to do that. But then you also have other clubs that are in the schoolboy sections that are affiliated with the club. So be it Rovers are affiliated with a, with a number of clubs, Luke and been one of them. And and so again, there's that coaches coming down from the club, working with that local club, those schoolboys and schoolgirls have been invited to be at Damien Park, be at Richmond Park, be at Turn's Cross, wherever. And again, you get that. So so I think that's where, um, you know, Thinking, looking at a league as a whole, I think there's a lot of positives to to look in that. And I think Rovers are doing particularly well at that as well.
0: Before we jump into the book, I'd be keen to get your opinions. To me, it feels like the league is making that crossover into, if not the Irish public, the Irish sporting public. So... Again, I won't get, we don't have enough time to go into your thoughts about Bowes and their Bob Marley shirt. But, but when Rovers have players like Jack Byrne uh, going into the Irish squad or getting to the Europa League as they did a number of years ago, they, they, they cross that threshold into credibility, don't they? So as you kind of long-term League of Ireland fans, do you see that difference as well? Do you see differences in the perception of the league?
1: I definitely do. I think James, you say it there. I think Jack Byrne's a good example. And um, there's been a number of League of Ireland players that have come through and got Ireland caps while playing at League of Ireland clubs. And I remember I, I was lucky enough the night I was in Stade de France when Graham Burke, who was with Shamrock Rovers at the time and is, is back at Rovers now, and um, he got a cap against uh, France uh, in the what was their World Cup warm up as they went on to win the world cup and i remember the just the thrill of, of that as been a rovers fan being able to to see that i think there's there's that crossover i think the qualifications of in in europe so particularly rovers but i think i think probably Dundalk, talk to be fair 2016 yeah. you know they were very competitive they won a match they drew a match uh whereas rovers in 2011 when they lost all six games competitive and probably five probably not the sixth one when when spurs came to uh came to Tallaght, um and i suppose the 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 amount of podcasts that are out there uh yours included uh the the media side on league of Ireland. i think at times i think the league of Ireland gets more coverage than potentially it, it deserves in the national newspapers to be to be honest if you look at the yeah. number of people that go through the turnstiles um the TV coverage not so good, so I think that's certainly something that yeah can be can be improved on as well. But um, and then you look at the uh, you look at the attendances. So take out the last couple of seasons because we've been dealing with COVID. But it's something I've had a, a look at a couple of times and 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 written about, and particularly as uh, as Gareth Penrose uh, uh, runs Extratime.com, he all, he collates all the attendance figures and. Um, so we've actually been able to. We're not talking the abstract about what the attendances are, but actually have the have the hard results for the. If you go probably twenty seventeen, twenty eighteen, twenty nineteen season, we have the attendances for all of that. So you can actually you can track the progress. And when fans came back last season, um, you know the attendances were good once people were allowed to allowed to come in, and uh, obviously people needed to be, feel comfortable with back in the stadium. So I think it'll be fascinating to see where. attendances go this season I, i i think they'll my view is that they'll be more um they'll be greater than they were in 2019 and certainly one of the factors when you look at the statistical analysis of attendance figures for football around the world one of the big things to get people to come to games is actually to have that competitive league so if you have one team running away with it and other teams are okay, you, you're vying for Europe and whatever, but actually, if you have a competitive title race, it actually does bring people more into it once the games are are, are meaningful. And I think we're probably, you know, I think we probably will, ha- will have that. And certainly the 10 team league actually helps with that for the Premier Division. So, um, you know, it's very, I think last season, the last game of the season, the last series of games of the season really what Shamrock Rovers, the game Shamrock Rovers were involved in, had nothing to play for, whereas I think all the other games had something to play for. Somebody was going for, for Europe. Somebody was trying to avoid uh, relegation. I think uh, Longford had been relegated, but I think everything else, um, but obviously Longford were playing in a game, so everything else was was meaningful. So uh, I think the 10-team league, which you've had for the last, I think maybe three seasons, if I have that right, um, I think that'll probably help when next season... This season coming, fingers crossed, uh, we have full capacities back at all the grounds around the league, both in the Premier Division and in the First Division.
2: Yeah, I, I kind of think as well that <clears throat> there's been a little bit of a change in mindset in the sporting public as well um, and in the in the, the footballing public, if you want to call them that. Um, you know, I think for a lot of times when the national team was doing quite well um, and we had effectively outsourced player development to top clubs in the UK, and um, people sort of divorced the League of Ireland from the rest of football. Like it was kind of seen that, well, this thing isn't really necessary because, you know, we we don't need it to, to do well. And I think people have kind of realised that that's not actually the case. You know, like if you look at, if you go through squads at major international tournaments, you know, you you will struggle, I think, to find another country competing in international tournaments that don't have players in the domestic league. Um, and I think people are realizing that, you know, Ireland isn't some sort of freakish country that can survive completely against the rules uh, and completely yeah. against, you know, the structures of world football. And um, so people are kind of realizing that. And I think the Stephen Kenny thing is probably helping as well in the sense that, you know, everyone's now talking about this need to rebuild, to, to, to start with these young players, to change how we're playing the game. So I think for the, for the first time in a long, long time, probably ever as far as I've been a football fan, people are actually talking about the structures of the game in Ireland and sort of how to build success. And I think sort of the penny is dropped for a lot of people that actually that means we need a stronger league. So maybe they're more willing to give it a go. And then once you actually give it a go, you realise it's actually quite fun.
0: I totally agree. And it's kind of that kind of dismissal of, oh, the the League of Ireland is shite. It's like, yeah but that's not a good thing it's like you, if you're calling yourself a football fan it needs to be good for for everything to improve
1: another outstanding chapter of the story of shamrock rovers Tony's clear Tony's gonna to score that's a very good ball by the superb goals culture. Nick
2: I knew what I was doing, I knew what to, what to do but me was like before I went away. We don't want to move, um, move on. Here. here we are at the Tower Stadium
1: home of Chevrolet Rovers. Chevrolet Rovers
0: and Lombeau. Is in I want to jump into the book. I think it's a brilliant idea, but it's a hell of an undertaking. so where did the idea come from to interview fifty players and and how what was the process? How long did it take
1: well we're, we're talking here probably twelve months on from from when we started it so it was it was a lockdown project so Owen sent me a, an email, which the subject matter was: "Is there anything to be said for another Shamrock Rovers book?" So, um, because Owen uh, wrote, "We are Rovers," uh, published uh, two thousand and five. Owen,
2: maybe five, five,
1: yeah, yeah. And I worked with Carl Riley on on Talatime, which looked at Shamrock Rovers between two, uh, 20 um, and God, gone like here two thousand and nine uh, and to twenty twelve. So the first four years. Uh, first four years in in to, to the new stadium in 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 Tala. um. But one of the things, so I've written for the Shamrock Rovers match program since probably two thousand and seven, And um, So I, I I do the main player interview. You know the mainstay, as people know from a match program. You know your 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 player interview. So so I've been doing that for you know for that long. So I've I've lots of interviews. Sometimes multiple interviews with the same player if they played for a long time, um, and then I had a number of other long form interviews with them. Um, I would have talked to a number of players from the six in a row era in the 1960s and the four in a row era in the 1980s. So, um, so I had a fair amount of interviews and then, oh, and maybe if you want to talk about the interviews that, that you had done, I suppose, then the genesis of taking it on to put it into a, into a book.
2: Yeah, so the, the We Are Rovers book I did in, in two thousand and five, um, it was an oral history of the club from the thirties to the turn of the century, I suppose. Uh, so it was based on interviews with players and supporters. Um, and as you know yourself, when you interview players, you only ever really use snippets of the interviews, you know, in, in articles and, and and in the book in this case. So, you know, I'd you sit down with the player for an hour or whatever and you've got your Three thousand word uh interview written up uh and then you, you kind of use you know 300 words of it uh in in the book so it was always in my head that i had whatever it was 15 or 20 interviews done um, and it was always in my head that you know the vast majority of those are just sort of they were sitting on a usb key upstairs you know no one had ever seen them kind of 15 years on so I, i'd always kind of thought you know i should do something with them particularly since some of the players had actually died in the meantime, you know, and I was always kind of conscious that in some ways this is their record, you know, it's their kind of testimony of um, what was a big thing in their lives uh, as well. So, you know, I, I always had that in my head. And then I suppose, as my was saying that the lockdown probably was the genesis of it in the sense that as well everyone was looking for a little project to keep themselves sane last January, um, And one night I was just sitting at home and it just sort of occurred to me, I was kind of thinking about this and sort of occurred to me, you know, if I have these interviews, you know, McDara must have loads as well from his book and his things. So, you know, could we put them together? Um, and the way we've, we've done them in the book is it's all first person. So each chapter is just a first person testimony from the player. So it's, you know, 1500 words or whatever it is. So there's none of us in it. You know, it's just directly in the player's words. So it's, it's effectively transcripts of the interviews. Now, obviously, we've edited it for, for clarity and for brevity and all that kind of stuff but you know it's 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 all the key points from the interviews it's all the bits that you usually wouldn't publish in a book um mm. so i think that's what kind of makes it interesting um and, and that was yeah that was the the general idea behind it
1: and then when we so we kind of had these interviews from from the different decades and we plotted them out just to see what because what we wanted to do was tell the story of of the football club through the words of the players that that had played on the on the pitch but um you know, then there was gaps, and we were trying to work. So, so there was about, I think we reckon there was about maybe thirty-two interviews that we we had, and we just needed to kind of edit together. And then we worked out well actually, what was missing. So there was the, so there was about, I think it was eighteen or nineteen fresh interviews then that we did for, that we did for the book. Um, all of them over Zoom. Bar bar one, Owen uh, got to meet Frank O'Neill, uh, uh, but all the others were done over. Over Zoom, and people were quite, if we think back to twelve months ago, you know, January and February was it was pretty bleak. We didn't know when we were going to come out of it. And the great thing is, um you know, anyone that's ever chatted to former players, like they love to be able they love to tell their story, and we love to hear them tell their story. So you know we got anyone that we got in touch with was more than happy to to have a chat, and that you weren't you weren't stuck for time. Um so we, we got kind of some what we felt was really good content but we we plotted out who the players that we needed to to interview so there was a couple of more players from the 1980s um, probably more so the kind of the mid-1990s I, I, quite an interesting period at Rovers when you know they were going from kind of ground to ground and and a lot of the players were Rovers fans and really you know, if they weren't Rovers plans, they they wouldn't have been playing for the club. Like they'd have left because they were being messed around in terms of at, at times wages, as well as just playing in front of pretty small crowds in in an away ground every week because there wasn't there wasn't a home ground. So that was interesting. Just to okay, where what's what eras did we want to talk? So getting to talk to players about when Rovers were relegated in uh, two thousand five for the only only time in the club's history. Uh, and then, you know, right up to the ple- present day. So, yeah, I spoke to Jack Byrne and I think he could well have been lying on a sun lounger in, uh, in a pool <laughs> in Cyprus uh, uh, in in April last year. So, so chatting to him about his time at Rovers. And then right up to, like, we interviewed a number of... Uh, every interview is someone who played for Rovers, but a lot of them also manage Rovers. So actually, and they're probably... I certainly found them the most interesting interviews to to do and the ones to write up. So the the final interview that we did for the book was with Stephen Bradley, so the 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 current yeah. Rovers head coach. And and you know, I I would speak to Stephen after many home games just, you know, for extra time.com and you're you're chatting about the game you know, the game just gone and the game to come, but actually to sit down with him for over an hour and just talk about his his career, like he played in the first game in, in Tallis Stadium in, in 2009, you know, a game that many Rovers fans thought we'd never see because the stadium had been, uh, uh, you know, unfinished for, for so long. And then also, I think quite importantly, talking about the genesis of the the Shamrock Rovers Academy, which we're seeing now, uh, you know, which is based out of, out of Roadstone, where... You know himself and Shane Robinson, who who's the academy director. You know spoke about, you know what what could they do and kind of put an outline of a plan together and then spoke with Johnson Roach, who's the chairman of the club at the time. And Jonathan was like, "Yeah, this sounds really good. Let me put it to the members." And um, you know Shamar Rovers are are a, a members owned club with um, with private ownership as well. Uh, um, True, Roy Wilson and and Dermot Desmond. Now since since then as well. Um, and the members are very supportive of it. And, and that's what was needed when we talk about, you know, five or six years ago when Rovers weren't com- competing for the league, but the investment was been put in place and the structures put in place. Um, so I think that was really interesting, as well as talk about, you know, he was the manager that that finally brought the FAI Cup back to and um, back to Shamrock Rovers, you know they've been stuck on twenty-four cup wins—a uh, nice number to have. I'm not complaining, but twenty-five is a much nicer number, and they've been stuck on that since 1987. So, so um, I think that was the case, and and maybe Owen, you might want to talk about the the couple of in- the interviews, maybe with Frank O'Neill, and and probably maybe with Pat Scully, which I think was another one, which was a standout one for us.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Um... Frank O'Neill was a very interesting one. I mean, listeners might be familiar with him. He he played in the in the 60s uh, primarily, but you know, this was a guy who moved to Arsenal as a young player, uh, played top flight uh, with Arsenal for a couple of games, um but sort of fell out with the manager, um, and just opted to come home. But, you know, had the skill, had the talent to play in the in the, the first division as it was then. Um, in England uh, at, you know, a really, really big club like Arsenal, but opted to play uh, four overs for effectively his whole career, really. I think he, in later years, moved on to a few other clubs. But, you know, uh, great to get an opportunity to, to meet um, Frank. And as McDowell was saying, he's actually the one we we uh, interviewed in person. Uh, he wanted to meet in person, but we had to wait until everyone was double-jabbed and all that. So that interview took a little bit of time, but it was well worth... Um, well worth uh, the weight. The and, you know, I think what's really interesting about players like that is that, you know, the book gives you an insight into Rovers, obviously, but it does more than that as well. Like, it's more of an insight into the game here and the ups and downs uh, in the Absolutely. game. Absolutely. Uh, and, you know, you know it's kind of unthinkable now. Uh, well, I should say unthinkable. I mean, I do, I do think Jack Byrne could potentially play at, at, at the highest level, but... You know, it's, it's almost unthinkable that lads would come back from the Premiership to play League of Ireland, you know. Um, but, you know, back in the 50s and 60s, before the Mac, before, sorry, when there's still a maximum wage in place uh, in England, you know, players could have done that. Like players like Jerry Mackey, who again we spoke to in the book, Jerry was offered uh, to go over to Manchester United uh, and turn them down to stay at Rovers because between his full time job uh, and the, the few Bob Rovers were giving him he was earning more than the maximum wage in England. So, you know, and he, he was far from the only one. So the standard of player uh, back then was really, really high because there wasn't the financial uh, incentive. Which is why I always say Jimmy Hill killed the League of Ireland, because he's the one who got rid of the maximum <laughs> wage. Um, but, you know, and that's kind of what set in motion the, the sort of the downfall, I suppose, uh, in, in the later years. But yeah, like just to like testimony from whether it's Jerry or, or Frank or whatever, it really gives you an insight into a completely different game here in Ireland um, and a different a different time in society, a different time in, in the league and in football and just really, really interesting insights to get.
0: You mentioned Pat Scully, McDarrah. I've slight bit of bitterness because the season before, <laughs> he was managing Kilkenny City and he did an unbelievable job. I think they'd lost the first 10 games or were bottom after the first 10 games. He took us on this unbelievable run and just missed out on the playoff position, and then took the Rovers' job, which is kind of testimony to the job he did at Buckley Park. And he took the whole team with him. He got the team. So, so what? What was it about Pat Scully that kind of intrigued you? What were the, some of the stuff he came out with?
2: Yeah, I might. Remember, I I spoke with Pat for the book, and um, it's funny. I mean, Pat's reputation. As I'm sure you know, he's kind of nearly like the Roy Keane of the League of Ireland. You know? like he's <laughs> he's sort of um, famously, uh, well, difficult is the wrong word, but you know, like kind of uh, hard to please, let's say. He fell out with a lot of people uh, o- o- over the years and uh, I got a number for him and, and even, you know, after all this time, at the age I am at this stage, I was actually nearly nervous ringing him, you know, <laughs> because you're kind of half expecting to jump down the phone at you, you know. But actually, he's very much mellowed with age, I'm glad to report. He's a, he's a lovely guy, and we had a great, great chat. But like you're saying, yeah, he did wonders with that Kilkenny team and mm. um, came to Rovers, a uh, freshly relegated Rovers. Rovers in the first division, the first ever time. And, uh, you know, we had this fairly rookie manager, although I had done a good job in that season. And he brought in sort of half the Kilkenny team and half the Kildare County team. And we're yeah. thinking, what the hell are you doing? Like, I mean, we're never going... But he knew what he wanted, and he wanted youth. He wanted players who were sort of 19, 20, and who, most importantly, had the mentality. Uh, he, he's, a, he's an absolute professional in everything he does, Pat. He's a total perfectionist. And, you know, if he doesn't think you're giving 100%, he will ju- you're just gone dead to him you know so he brought in the players who he knew he could really mold uh, in in that way and you know even in the the interview it's whatever 1500 word interview or whatever it is with them you know the word mentality i think is in there sort of 10 or 15 times you know like he, he always harks back to that about you know and he, and he points to times when the team was on the ropes a little bit you know because they're going for motion very young team a lot of pressure on them um, and they were on the ropes at a few times over that season. And he was talking about how we'd get them in the changing room, and he'd say, you know, this is what I'm talking about. This is when you need to be strong. This is when you need that mentality to go out there in front of those fans and perform and get the results and grind them out. And uh, and and he did. And you know, Pat wasn't with us for long. He was only with us for a couple of seasons. Um, but you know, I think he has played a massive role in the rebirth of the club. Um, and everyone looks back very, very fondly of him, even if we're still slightly scared.
0: <laughs> we could talk for hours. There's so many players there. But another name that's interviewed is Pat Byrne, another man with a Kilkenny connection. He took us to uh, took us to the playoff, except he he got suspended for, for the last couple of games. For He kept getting sent off. And so the caretaker boss actually got us promoted through the playoff. But uh, we spoke about him before. The last player to be capped for Ireland in a competitive game until Jack Byrne, is that right? Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, that's an unbelievable tale as well. Uh, There there is one, if you would indulge me, would be the John Giles interview. Uh, For those unfamiliar, Giles is effectively a huge name in England with Leeds um, and Man United, but decided to come home and, and create this kind of project to turn Rovers into... A power and potentially a European power. um, It's before my time, before you guys' time, but famously it didn't work. And himself and Eamon Dunphy, well, more so Eamon Dunphy, would have been very dismissive of the League of Ireland for a long, long time based on their experiences of trying to create that project. And to be fair to Eamon Dunphy, since Dundalk kind of were making those breakthroughs under Stephen Kenny. He he's almost been won over. He's kind of lost that bitterness he had towards the league. But I've never really heard John Giles talk about his time at Rovers or be complimentary of the league. And it, he may well be, but I'd just like to get both your assessment of of the interview and that time in the history of your club.
1: I'm gonna I come in first because Owen did the interview, so you can talk a bit more extensively about it. But one of the things is I have John Giles' uh, autobiography, and Shamrock Rovers gets about half a page on it, which I can kind of yeah. understand. Like he was part of a very successful Leeds United team. He was player manager of the national team, and um, you know became synonymous as a, as a very incisive pundit on on RT television and on Irish television. So, you know, the Rovers is a small part of his career, but he was still manager for for quite a long time. He was manager for four seasons i think stephen bradley only took over has only had a longer period as manager from john giles in the last kind of month or so or or certainly was late last season Um, and so um so so i was certainly interested to see could we get john giles because he hasn't really talked that much about shamrock rovers and certainly the perception james that you talk about there is was my perception in that it you know was a failure like Rovers did win the FAI Cup, I think, in his first season as manager and won one of the other minor cups. But, you know, ultimately it it wasn't successful. But I think what was really interesting, just the, the point I wanted to make, was what John Giles tried to do then is a lot of what Rovers are doing right now. So yeah. education was a real key thing. So he brought players in um, on, who were able to, uh, train and play with the first team, and also there was a, a reserve side at the time, and could also get their education, and that's something that Rovers are doing. They've a link up with um, uh, oh, I can't remember Ash Ashurst, I've got it wrong now, but anyway, the Ashfield College is the name of the the college. And I was um, Shamrock Rovers played their first preseason game two weekends ago against uh, Fairview Rangers down in Nimerick, and you know there was a. Uh, the usual pre-season friendly 11 players went out the first half and then there was nine subs at, at half time but mixture amongst those uh, 20 year odd players were a number of players who God they were very young and actually wh- wh- who they were, they are actually in transition year and they'd been training with they're part of the Rovers Academy and they have been training with the first team that week, the first week back of pre-season um, because of our summer season and uh They'd been training with the first team in the morning, the, you know, 10 o'clock to 12 o'clock getting their lunch. And then in Roadstone, their tutor was coming in from Asheville College and they were doing their, their, they're in 50, they're in transition year. So they're still two years away from their leaving cert, their, their final, you know, school exams. And uh, this was, they were then part of the first team squad uh, that day. And, and uh, Stephen Bradley, talking to him afterwards he was saying you know i could have brought some of the under 19s down but actually these guys have been in with us all week and they've been doing really well i wanted to see what they were like and also was a reward for them and i think some of the things that giles tried to put in place was kind of similar to that and certainly owen he 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 spoke about that and he he spoke about he was very much aware of what (coughs) rovers are are doing now but uh yeah i think you you got his number and i was like well We'll give him a ring. We'll see if he wants to talk to us. But actually, he was he was more than willing.
2: He was, yeah. He was very up for it, actually. And I I, I wasn't sure whether he would be because he hasn't really spoken about it. But no, he was very generous at the time and, and and very nice to speak to. Like I think what was really interesting was that even if you talk to the players from that time, and obviously we've spoken to some of them as well, they'll all say uh, Giles was ahead of his time. Mm. Uh, and that leads back to exactly what my dar was saying, was that you know, he was trying to put in structures that we're only really getting around to doing now, 40 years later. Um, and, you know, what a, what a wasted 40 years for Irish football in a lot of ways. But, you know, yeah. um, like he he even said in it, like even the, the heading of his chapter is we tried to do something for young people that we hadn't had ourselves. Because he was speaking about, you know, how when he went over to Man United at the age of 14, he went over that, you know, it was really just sink or swim. You know, like no one looked after you. No one was there to to see you were settling in or whatever you were throwing in digs, uh, and you know, it was, as I said, it was sink or swim, and obviously he swam, but a lot of a lot of people sink in that environment. So he had a obviously a wonderful career, and what was really interesting was that he was he was managing West Brom at the time in the first division, and he made a decision to come back. Uh, to Rovers, uh, you know, and obviously huge name in England, potentially a big future for in in management in England um, but he risked it all to come back and, you know, you have to give him huge uh, respect and credit for doing that, you know, he tried to I suppose take his experiences, his knowledge and actually try and improve the structures of the game here and I think there's no doubt that he was frustrated by the fact that other clubs didn't really share his vision or whatever. Uh like he even says in it, you know, the clubs would come down to Middletown and say, God, your pitch is amazing. And he'd say, Well, would you not think about doing something with your own pitch? You know, yeah. like I mean there's literally cows on it before the match, you know. Yeah. Um so, you know, he tried to do that, but held back by loads of different factors. Um I think probably the league wasn't ready for John Giles, to be honest. But you know what was interesting was I asked him at the end of the interview, I said, you know, Given the way it worked out, um, you know, would you would you have done it again? You know, if you had the choice again, and in fairness to him, he was very honest. He said, you know, knowing everything I know, um, I wouldn't do it again. You know, because and and fair play to him for the honesty. You know, <laughs> like in the sense that he had given up a really uh, successful and, and 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 big future in the game in England, and uh, and it didn't work out from here. So, you know, he was very complimentary about the club and very complimentary about everything we're trying to do now. And I think he sees the parallels with what's happening now and what he tried to do. But fascinating time uh, in the club's history and talking to the players in that time as well. They would give you an insight into, you know, being, you know, 18 years old and suddenly you're playing with John Giles, you know, and and yeah. what that was like and the standards he demanded and how he coached them and, and all that. And And every player from that era has nothing but, Absolute admiration for for everything he did. But yeah, on the pitch, I think the league wasn't ready for for what he tried to do, unfortunately.
0: Lads, I've thoroughly enjoyed our conversation and I think we've only scratched the surface. You you have 50 interviewees. As you said, it's not just a history of Ireland's most successful football club and an institution, I called it. It's the history of football in in this country, isn't it? So what what an amazing project. I've really enjoyed our conversation. Where can people get the book, get their hands on it?
2: Well, you can get it on the Rovers website, shamrockrovers.ie. And just to say as well that all the profits from the book go directly into the Rovers Academy. Uh, So, you know, by... Uh, buying the book, you're 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 reading about the greats of the past, but you're investing in in hopefully some of the great names of the future as well. So yeah, shamrockrovers.ie, the, the club shop on the website, uh, it's up there.
1: And if you uh, don't yeah. like Shamrock Rovers, you can still buy the book and and hear stories of players crying because Rovers got relegated, or or the time that they had to um, <laughs> throw uh, what was it bits of uh, old Oops. shin guards boots into the furnace to try and keep warm. Uh, wow. In training, that was in the seventies on as well. We're not talking about nineteen thirties, yeah?
2: yeah. Early seventies, yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah. So there's plenty of horrific stories as well if you, if if you're that way inclined. But uh, um, hopefully, uh, um, hopefully you'll buy it. Whatever whatever your motivations are, we'd encourage you to get it, um, and hopefully you enjoy the read as well. But James, thanks a million for, for having us on. We've really enjoyed uh, chatting about it. We will, as you know, we can always talk about Shamrock Overs uh, till the cows come home. You know.
0: No, it's really enjoyed it, lads. Um, I think I asked one question. Did you think the league now has kind of broken into the mainstream? I think Shamrock Rovers was always a kind of romantic name that transcended football. People knew it. There's that tagline, the Man United of Irish football. I never really liked, but it was always a kind of a romantic name. I remember going into Lansdowne Road because I was a League of Ireland fan. I bought a Rovers shirt I don't know. it Must have been in the nineties. I went in, and there was a garter there, and he just said, "Keep on hooping to me." So you know, the the it might the, the
1: name is synonymous. I think because it's you know Shamrock Rovers, certainly from outside of Ireland, like it is a novel name. It does capture yeah. captures people's attention. I think Saint Patrick's Athletic is similar, but I think Shamrock Rovers just uh, uh, just and then the Man United. I suppose you look at the success of the club, but one of the genesis stories that you know, people do look back on and, and we talked about it in the book, is that, you know, Rovers played that Busby Babe team that, that year in that competition. And yeah. uh like that was interesting, just a couple of players who 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 remember that and hearing that news. So the the, the Man United uh was quite happy I uh, as a United fan myself yeah. suppose, included as well. So we don't really mind it as well. But I think the I think the name I think the name helps and then the shirt, you got Glasgow Celtic, but I think the shirt is there's not that many green and white hoops. You can think of Sporting Lisbon. I think that probably helps as well. You know. Yeah. Well, my
0: brother Key mightn't agree, but I hope you guys enjoy the season ahead. And I think I think it's a, going to be a an exciting one for League of Ireland. I think we didn't even talk about like Richie Towell, Jack Byrne playing together. Personally, I think like Byrne might be and Towell might be eyeing a recall to the international squad. There's there's so much more we could talk about. So. Thanks so much for joining us uh, on the podcast. And that's it for the latest episode of the Pokemon Gold Podcast. Drop us a rating or subscribe wherever you get your pods and toggle back for previous shows. Don't forget, you can still order issue 7 of the magazine online on our website, along with our unique football design with the charity Alive and Kicking and other items. Join us next time on the
1: Pokemon Gold Podcast.